we're just looking at the last phrase of verse 3. We're not going to read all the previous verses that we've been doing. We'll just read the last phrase of verse 3. In the New American Standard Bible, speaking of Jesus, it says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high after he made purification for our sins. Lord, speak to us again today concerning what this means. You spoke to us wonderfully last week about the practical implications of your ascension. And Lord, today, again, we want it to be very practical. We want you to just meet us in your word, and we want to be transformed. Lord, really, I'll just pray this on behalf of all of us, myself included. We need to be rattled out of our apathy. We need to be rattled out of our myopic, egocentric worldview. We need to catch the vision, God, for what you are into, what you're doing in the world, what your heart contains. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would narrow all of our interests as they have to do with the things on earth and that you would broaden all of our interests as they have to do with the things of you. Make us more concerned about heavenly things than earthly things and show us how the two connect in our lives and the practical application of these truths. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we have in view here, as we spoke about last week, this is part two of last week's message, is the ascension of Jesus Christ. And you'll remember that I said the ascension means a couple things for us practically. Number one, it means that we're to have a great expectancy, and number two, that we have a great opportunity. A great expectancy and a great opportunity. And we covered the expectancy part last week when we talked about, according to the words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, that in the time that he is in heaven, we are to be expecting the power of the person of the Holy Spirit to be functioning in our lives. That's something that we should be counting on. That's something that we should seek. That is something we, we should walk in is the Spirit, as Galatians 5 says. But we're not only to be expecting the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to be expecting the return of Jesus Christ. And we talked about that extensively last week. And how that then reorganizes our priorities. How we ought to live differently according to the fact that he will come like a thief in the night. That nobody knows the day nor the hour, but as sure as the day is long, Jesus is coming again. And there has to be, for the Christian, there must be a practical response to that truth. There has to be a real outflow in our lives of that theological truth that Jesus is coming again at any moment. And he's looking for, he's expecting a few things when he comes again, and that's going to be the subject of our sermon today. But I want to ask you, in all humility, in all gentleness, in all kindness, being one of you, I want us to ask ourselves, has anything changed in our lives since last Sunday? Since last Sunday, when we heard that truth, some of us for the first time, some of us were like, what? Jesus is coming again? <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Some of us, we've heard it for the millionth time. But we heard it. And with knowledge comes responsibility. 
With knowledge comes responsibility. Has anything changed in our lives since last week? If it has, praise the Lord. That, that, that's what the Word of God is supposed to accomplish in your lives. You see, the Word of God is meant to be transformative. And we're to read it with an eye toward transformation. We're to read it saying, okay, Lord, I, I want to discover more about you, but I don't just want knowledge. I want relationship. And I want to be transformed in that relationship. And so we should read our word, the word of God, with a transformative heart and mind. Has anything changed in your life since last week? If not, why not? I mean, honestly, I'm not asking anybody to raise hands. This is between you and the Holy Spirit. And I don't want anybody to feel condemned. That, that would be from the enemy. But I do want to poke you and prod you a little bit. Book of Hebrews says, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. You know what spur is? Ever seen a cowboy movie? Spur is that thing that jingle, jangle, jingles on the back of the boot. But for a horse, wham! And it gets them going. It's somewhat violent, a spurring on. It's potent. It's poignant. It gets you moving. And the Word of God says that we're to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So I don't want to condemn anybody because I'm just like you. But I want to spur us on toward love and good deeds. I want to kick us in the rear, so to speak, and say, Jesus is coming back. If that doesn't change the way we live, why not? It doesn't have to be a huge, overnight, radical abandonment of all that we previously knew but at least some small incremental changes as to priorities, relationships, what's important. So the truth that Jesus is coming again puts us in a posture of waiting and expecting. But there's another posture that the church is to assume. In light of the ascension, yes, we find ourselves waiting and expecting, but we are also supposed to be running and racing. That is the dual posture of the church, always waiting and expecting for the return of Christ, but running and racing until that day. And we run and we race in light of the great opportunity that was given to us just before the ascension of Jesus Christ. So we'll see that his ascension means a waiting and an expecting and a running and a racing because of something called the Great Commission. We run and race. I want us to look at it in Matthew 28. Turn in your Bibles there, please. Matthew chapter 28. We're almost in Matthew 28 in our one-year Bible reading. Be there in a couple days. In Matthew 28, the closing verses... We find ourselves after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and just before the ascension of Jesus Christ and we have something that has been called throughout history in the church, the Great Commission. What is a commission? A commission is an entrusting with authority. An entrusting with authority. Being given authorization to act on behalf of another is what it means to be commissioned. Being given authority and authorization to act on behalf of another. The Great Commission. Notice here, it says in verse 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to the disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Notice that Jesus starts out by saying, All authority has been given unto me. Authority, exousia in the Greek. It combines in the context here the idea of both right and might. Jesus says, all the right in heaven and on earth belongs to me. He has all the prerogative. He's the ruling and reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? And then he says, all the might belongs to me in heaven and on earth. And then there comes the commissioning. He claims all authority for himself, and then he authorizes the disciples, and subsequently you and I, those are who are his disciples now. He says, I've got all the authority. You go, therefore. You go. There's an authorizing, a commissioning, an enlisting. Let me say it another way. An inviting into the mission of God. An inviting into the mission of God. You see, God is on a mission. He's a savior. And the victory that was necessary for the success of that mission has already been won. Amen? That victory is won at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so now, the Lord is just reaping the fruit of that victory. Salvation of men and women. He's just reaping the fruit of that victory. And he's invited us into the reaping process. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, said the Lord. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest that he might send workers into the harvest field. You see, the harvest is already prepared. The victory is already won. And Jesus is a willing Savior. He wants to save. He's in the business of saving. He said when he was 12 years old, when Mary and Joseph were looking for him and he was in the temple, he said, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? And he is in the business of saving the Father is. And Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And he invites us into that mission, into that business, into that work. And he invites us with power. He gives us power in the person of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. Tarry in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high, and then you shall be my witnesses. He gives us power in the person of the Holy Spirit, but he also gives us power just in the fact that we've been commissioned. He authorizes us to act in his name. And what we're to be doing is making disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's what we're to be doing. We're to be making disciples. We're to be going to all the nations, and we're going to be teaching to others the thing that Jesus Christ has taught to us. And notice what he says. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's a special sense of God's presence that you experience when you're doing the work of God. When he said, I'm with you always until the end of the age, it's in the context of making disciples. You see, for a lot of Christians, Christianity is boring because they don't do a dang thing. Just pew potatoes. 
You just come to church. You clock in, you, don't, you clock out. That's all you do. Your Christianity's boring. I don't even know why you come. It's a boring Christianity. For others, it's incredibly exciting. It's life. It's living. It's exhilarating because you're doing a dang thing. You're living for the person of Jesus Christ and not for yourself. And in that comes a tremendous sense of freedom. And in that we realize the presence of the risen Lord in a way that you will never experience in living for yourself. You will never experience the fullness of the person of Jesus Christ when it's all about you. He's just not really into that gig. But when we make it about him and his kingdom, and when we respond to the invitation and to the great commission, then we experience his presence into the end of the age in the most profound way. And I want us to notice that the church has historically called this the great commission and not the great suggestion. He didn't really suggest. He actually kind of commanded, to put it bluntly. He didn't say, you know, all authority has been given unto me. And if you want to, if it's not a burden, if it doesn't bum you out, if it doesn't trip out your gig too much, if you want to, maybe you could consider sort of like going and making disciples. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now you go and do my work. It's a command, really. And the weird thing about Christians is we just don't obey that often. We really don't. We obey where we want to obey. But where we don't want to obey, we don't obey. And in that, it's just a rip-off. You just get ripped off. You're still saved. Lord still loves you. He loves you with a perfect love. He can't love you anymore. He can't love you any less. He loves you with a perfect love. It doesn't change the way he feels about you. It just changes the way that he uses you. It just changes your effectiveness. It just changes the level to which your daily activity is redeemed or not redeemed. And it changes your future in heaven, as we'll talk about in a moment. I want us to see the word running and racing. Now, that phraseology used now is we talk about the same idea in Hebrews 12. Back to Hebrews Chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Starts out saying, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Stop for one moment. The witnesses referred to here are the great men and women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. The hall of faith, so to speak. And he says, since we have this witness or this testimony of men and women who have gone before us. Who have been faithful to the call of God on their lives. They faced overwhelming circumstances. Many of them were killed for their faith. Many of them had, had things that, that seemed to hinder them from the call of God. Things that would have held them back. They had to overcome. But we have this description, this testimony, this witness of these men and women throughout history who went for it in chapter 11. And then it says, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also, in the same way that others have done in history before us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance... You see, if you endeavor to serve the Lord, you're going to very quickly realize that there's some th encumbrances, some hindrances, be it ideologies, 
be it relationships that you've entangled yourself with, be it your commitment to earthly things or earthly ideals, you will just find that there's some entanglements. They're not huge, insurmountable, non-overcomable things. They're just everyday things where we got to count the cost. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, count the cost. They're just everyday things where we got to go, you know what? In following the Lord and in stepping into his mission to see disciples make, this is going to be a hindrance to me. And then you start thinking in this sort of way. This thing that's happening in my life, as I'm endeavoring to serve the Lord, is it going to be a weight or a wing? Something that weighs me down and keeps me from all that God has for me, or a wing that carries me along in the process of walking in God's plan for my life. A weight or a wing, the various things in your life. You'll start to see them in that way if you endeavor to obey the Lord. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. The sin which so easily entangles us. That's how sin is. Sin is like a net. You just get caught up in it so quickly. And sometimes it seems like the harder you try to get out of it, the harder it is to get out. The more you become entangled. That's when you've got to call upon the person of Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, free me. Because <laughs> whom the Son is set free is free indeed. But you see, that's why we've got to keep ourselves from sin because it's like a net. It's like honey. You know when you, you get you, a little bit of honey starts dripping somewhere and it gets on you, you try to get it, the next thing you know, just everywhere, the honey. It's like honey, just, ugh, just get, I can't, how do I do, ugh. It's just so messy, sin is. And, and we get entangled in it, and then that hinders, look what it hinders. It says in the next phrase, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice that the Christian life is called a race. It's set before us. It's mapped out by God himself. It already exists in his heart. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. He wants to redeem, give value to your daily activity. And notice the race, it, it, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It requires endurance. Let us run, running and racing. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Christian life is a race, we're to run. And it's mapped out by God, but it requires endurance. You see, many start well, but not many finish well. And the Bible's full of those testimonies. Men and women who have started great, but somewhere along the line faltered. My almost singular hope for my life is that I will finish well the course that God has set for me. It's a race. It's a marathon. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And here's the key to success in that race, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now that's what we've been talking about, is the fact that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And because his work is finished, means that ours has just begun. His work on the cross, we talked about the work that he's currently doing, but his work on the cross is completed, but our work just begins. And so for the church, the time of Christ's ascension becomes a historical turning point. And at the conclusion of his work and his ascension, there is for his followers not a dismissal. There wasn't, okay, boys, we did it, good job. Not a closing of the curtain, 
but a challenge, a command, a commission, whereby the church is called into the time of mission. One quote, the time of the great opportunity of the task of the church toward the world. That is the age in which we are living. The dispensation, the time. We are living in the time of mission, in the time of activity, in the time of great opportunity. And what the church has got to do is catch that vision. That there's a race and it's set before us and we've got to run and we've got to run with endurance. And the key to success is to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Because when you get your eyes on yourself, it gets so dang complicated so quick. Because you're weird. That's the way it is, man. If you get all introspective and introverted and into your feelings, you're going to trip out and you're going to stutter and falter and stall in the race. Because you're weird. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is perfect, and we get over ourselves and we just run hard toward him, it's a glorious life. And we also kind of got to keep our eyes off of all the troubles and the tribulations and the trippy stuff of the world and, and not get caught up in all the overwhelming circumstances. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. If Peter had just kept his eyes on Jesus, he would have kept walking on the water and not sunk into the waves. But it says when he looked at the wind and the waves around him, he began to sink. And so many Christians start running real hard and then, oh no, oh, oh this, and oh, woe is me, and this, and then and they start to sink into those circumstances. We're not called to sink into circumstances. We are called to be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And so we keep our eyes focused on him and we experience the victory of the cross. So we're invited into this mission. The posture of the church is to be waiting and expecting and running and racing. But notice... This time of mission, it's an actual time. It's a historical period. It's not forever. Here's a quote for you that I came across in a commentary this week. It says, we are reminded that it is possible to hear the terrible words too late. We're not dealing with timeless verities or truths in the life of the soul, but with a real happening in history with real opportunities which must be seized or they will be lost. And I love this last sentence. The church is not sent into the world to explain the world, but to change it. It's a moment in history. It's a moment in time, the time of the mission of the church. And it's got to be seized or it'll be lost. And there's a time when the Lord comes back when it's too late. Then the activity of the church, it ceases. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to start making disciples. And you know what often keeps us from that is fear because we don't have all the answers. And we don't have all the answers. We're not supposed to have all the answers. I love what this author said. The church is not called into the world to explain it, but to change it. We may not be able to answer every question that somebody has, but we do have one answer that transforms their lives. That's the person of Jesus Christ. And what you have is all you need. The point is that we've got to engage in this mission. Now, every Christian is given ministry opportunities. Every single Christian. Ephesians 2.10 says that you are God's workmanship could be translated masterpiece. 
You are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice, you're created, you're special. You are created for good works. We're not saved by good works. We know that. We're saved by grace through faith. But we are saved for good works. He doesn't just want to redeem our souls. He wants to redeem all the activity of our lives. And notice what it says. For good works which God prepared beforehand. You see, for everyone who is his, God has good works already planned out for you. He, he wants your life to be fruitful. And so he endeavors to be faithful. He is always faithful. And just like a father who wants to see his son succeed, he sets him up for success. The father sets us up for success and mission. He prepares good work beforehand. He's the Lord of the harvest. He already won the victory on the cross. And then he sends you into the harvest to just reap good works that he prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. That phraseology means that there's some people that will never walk in them. But we should walk in them. Part of the tone and the tenor of the Christian life should be, okay, Lord, this is cool. What are the good works you have for me? Lord, you know my life. It's not that exciting. You know, I work at this office, and I pretty much do the same thing every day, and then I come home and pretty much the same thing. But I believe your word, and I believe that somewhere in the daily mix of my life, you have good works prepared. Things that are of eternal significance. Things that are a reflection of your heart. Ways for me to engage with a willing Savior to see the world saved. God, I believe that you have them for me. And the mundane, everyday things that I do, they're there somewhere. Open my eyes to see. They're there. God's not calling everybody to lay aside their job and to hop on a boat or a plane and go overseas and do this radical thing. He's calling you to be you. But to be you in light of who he is. Doesn't stop with you. He's calling you to be you, but in light of who he is. God has prepared good works beforehand. So every Christian is given ministry opportunities. Now, every Christian is gifted for ministry. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Each has been given a special gift. Use it, therefore, in the serving of one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, or God's grace in its various forms. Notice what the scripture says. Each has been given a special gift. Every single believer has at least one gift that is for the purpose of ministry. Each has been given a special gift. Use it, therefore. Don't neglect it. Don't put it on the shelf. Don't lay it aside. Don't blow it off. Use it, therefore, in the, what does it say? In the serving of one another. Now, there's a key. You see, we've attached some weird connotations to the word ministry. Ministry in the original language simply means service. When we talk about every Christian has a ministry, we're saying every Christian has opportunities to serve somebody else. That's what we're talking about. Ministry is service. Therefore, ministry is people because God is into people. He didn't come to save buildings. 
He didn't come to save animals. I'm sorry. He came to save people. God is into people. And ministry means serving people. That's what it means. Strip away all the other connotations, all your connotations of power and recognition and influence and all this junk that we've attached to it. It means to serve people. And every one of you has a special gift. Use it, therefore, in the serving of one another as good stewards. What's a steward? A steward is one who has oversight but owns nothing. A steward doesn't own anything, but he's entrusted with oversight. You must realize that all ministry is God's ministry. All ministry is God's ministry. That's why I get slightly perturbed, but I'm not legalistic, weird, dogmatic about it. But I get perturbed when people say, my ministry. All ministry is God's ministry. But we're stewards. Now, what are we stewards of? We're stewards of the grace of God. Notice, stewards of the grace of God, of his unmerited, undeserved, lavished upon us favor. We're stewards of the grace of God. We're to go around distributing. A steward distributes. We're to go around distributing the grace of God. We are not stewards of the judgment of God or the wrath of God or the anger of God. We're stewards of the grace of God. We're to be merciful and full of grace toward others as he's been toward us. Everyone has a gift with which they can do this. Every single Christian has a gift. You say, well, how do I discover my gift or my gifts? Well, let me tell you what you don't do. You don't take some silly survey. What you do is you serve somebody. You endeavor to start to serve people and you will discover your gift. Now, the Holy Spirit will help you by opening your eyes to certain needs around you. Nobody else in the whole church may see it. Nobody else in your neighborhood may see it. Nobody at work may see it. But all of a sudden you see, wow, somebody's got to do something about that. I mean, somebody should really step up and help that person. I mean, somebody ought to come alongside and provide. Somebody ought to just lift that. God showed you. You very well might be that somebody. And and when you say in your heart, okay, I'm going to serve people in any way that I see they need to be served, you will discover your gift. You may all of a sudden discover that you have the gift of mercy. Or you may find that you have the gift of giving. Or you might find that you have a prophetic gift, that you're able to speak the very words of God into somebody's life in the moment of need. You may find that you have the gift of administration. You can put things together and make things happen for the kingdom of God to advance. You may find that you have the gift of teaching. The gift of helps, just coming alongside and helping somebody. But if you never seek to serve somebody, you'll never know what your gifts are, and your Christianity will forever be boring. Forever be boring. Sunday mornings is going to be as exciting as it ever gets for you. And that's lame Christianity. But if you'll live according to the Word of God, you'll discover that you're gifted and that you can distribute God's grace to people as you serve them. And that's when Christianity gets really exciting. So every Christian is given ministry opportunities. Every Christian is gifted for that ministry. And every Christian's ministry will look different. I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians 12, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
every Christian's ministry will look different. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we studied this together last summer on our Wednesday evenings. So this is some familiar ground for many of us. But we'll just start reading in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects or results or outcomes of the ministries, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, that is a gift of the Spirit, for the common good. Notice we see again, each one is given the gift of the Spirit or multiple gifts of the Spirit for the common good. We really err when we think God gives us the gifts of the Holy Spirit for us. That's when we really start blowing it. It's for the edification of the church and the evangelization of the world. For to one is given the word of wisdom. Here's a list of some of the gifts. Through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. You see, we're all going to have different gifts, and they're all going to work out differently. And, and we fall into a trap when we try to make our ministry look like somebody else's. You know what I mean? When we see, well, they're doing it like that, so I want to do it like that. Or, gosh, I wish I had their gift, or I wish they had their ministry. Listen, the Holy Spirit and His wisdom gives you just the right gifts. You're going to discover them when you start loving and serving people. Until then, you'll never know. It'll just be this big mystery. of the gifts, what? You start loving and serving people, you'll discover, and then it's all going to be different. God has designed the body to be different. My ministry's not going to look like yours, and yours isn't going to look like mine, and yours isn't going to look like hers, and hers isn't going to look like his. It's going to be different the way that we do it. And each one is needed. That's the next point. Every Christian's ministry is necessary. Every Christian's ministry is necessary. Pick it up in verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Talking about the church now. The church universal, the body of Christ, everybody that's born again, made up of many different members and yet one body, just like us. We've got arms and legs and head and hands and feet and mouth and eyes and ears and nose. The church universal is made up of all these different parts that are us, and we come together to make one. Look, everyone's necessary. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. It's not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? 
But now there are many members but one body. You see, every one of us plays a role in the church universal. And just because you deny to play your role doesn't make your role go away. You know what it makes? It makes a body that is lame. A body that is impaired. A body that is incapacitated. A body that walks with a limp. A body that is made handicapped when you refuse to be who you are in Christ Jesus and fulfill the course that is set before you and the good works that God prepared beforehand. You refuse to participate, your role doesn't go away. We just have a lame body. And that's a big problem because we're living in just a specific amount of time. It's a time that's coming to an end. The time is now for the mission of the church. And, and, and the time is short. You see, the church has been waiting for 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. And I don't think it's going to be much longer. I know that his coming is nearer now than it was then. I know that. And so we're dealing with a determined amount of time. We don't have time for the body to be lame. So it comes down to individual responsibility within community. Individual responsibility within community. You must begin to realize that the church is a community and that you don't have the right to be the Lone Ranger. That right's not given to you. When you were called by Christ, you were called into his body, you were called into community. You don't have the sovereign right to be the Lone Ranger. You play a role. We are interconnected. And we affect one another. And together we're effective. We're effective for the furtherance of the kingdom. So every Christian is given ministry opportunities. Every Christian is gifted for ministry. Every Christian's ministry will look different, and that's awesome. And every Christian's ministry is necessary. And then every Christian will be rewarded according to his or her faithful participation in the disciple-making process. Turn to chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Back a few pages, 1 Corinthians 3. The context of the first couple chapters of Corinthians is that the church in Corinth has become somewhat segregated and divided. There's schisms happening because they've exalted certain leaders over and against one another. Some are saying, hey, you know what? Paul is my guy. And I'm going to kind of follow after Paul. I'm going to be a Pauline Christian. And others are saying, well, Barnabas, Bar no, Barnabas, he, he was a guy. And others are saying, no, Peter, Peter was a guy. Peter was a guy. And so there, there was these factions happening in the church, and Paul is writing to correct that. And now we pick it up in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 3. And Paul says, what then is Apollos? one of the people that were being esteemed and followed after. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Just servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Notice, Paul says, don't exalt your leaders. They're just servants. Don't start following after them. They're just servants. They were just instruments through whom you believed as they were given opportunity. Each has been given an opportunity. Verse 7, so then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. 
I skipped a verse, didn't I? Verse 6. If I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So Paul says, our ministry looked different. If Apollos, uh, if I planted, Apollos watered, we had different roles, but God was the one who was causing the growth. In the Greek grammar of the sentence, both planting and watering is in the aorist tense, which simply means this. It was something that happened at a finite moment in time. It was an action that was completed. It was an action that was completed. It, it's finished. But when it says God was causing the growth, it's in the imperfect tense, which means the action doesn't end. It's still happening, which means that God is the primary active agent in the mission of saving human beings. He is the primary active agent. We play roles. We step into the mission and we have a role to play. But our role is punctiliar. It happens in a moment and then it's done. But God is always working behind the scenes. That means we step into a partnership with one who is greater than us. One who is more effective than us. One who's working harder than us. I planted, Paul said, Apollos watered, but God is always the one who is causing the growth. That means that you can do your ministry with great confidence. Remember that Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes in the world, he will come to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment? It's our responsibility to deliver the message. It's the Holy Spirit's opportunity to minister the message. You know what I mean? So you can have great confidence that when you do what God has called you to do, you leave it in the hands of the Lord. The results aren't up to us. What's up to us is the obedience to do it. The results are up to the Holy Spirit. He's the one who causes the growth. Verse 7. So that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God is the one who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward. We're all part of the same body. We're going to work together. But remember what I said? individual responsibility within community. Each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. I love how he says that. If you're involved in the mission of God, you're his fellow worker, his partner. And you are God's field, God's building, talking about the church that he was ministering in. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it, but let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Be careful how you do your ministry. Watch your motives, watch your methodology. Now look, here's what I wanted to get to, verse 12. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Fire speaks of judgment. And what we're talking about here is the judgment seat of Christ. After the Lord's return for the church, when we are with the Lord in heaven, there will be an event called the judgment seat of Christ. It's the judgment of believers. We won't be judged for our sins. Jesus already took our judgment for sins upon the cross. Amen? 
Now, those who reject the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, they will be judged for their sins at a different judgment that comes later called the Great White Throne Judgment, spoken about at the end of the book of Revelation. But this is a judgment for believers. And notice, we will be judged according to the way that we worked in this lifetime, the way that we engage with the work of the kingdom in this lifetime. Verse 14, If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet as through fire. This is an uncomfortable reality or a wonderful reality, depending on where you're at. There will be, when we go to be with the Lord, a judgment in which we will be judged according to how faithful we were with the opportunities that God gave us. There's no question about this. It's spoken of also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Jesus spoke about it repeatedly. In fact, it was in your one-year Bible reading today in Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents where he gave resources to his individual servants and when he came back, he was expecting to see a return on the investment. Now God has invested in each one of us. Gifts, talents, resources, abilities, spheres of influence, possibilities, opportunities, courses set before us. And we will stand before Jesus and be judged according to how faithful we were. Everybody's opportunity is different, so it's not comparative. It's not like, oh, duh, Billy Graham's going to have the biggest reward in heaven. It's not like that. It's not comparative. It's just between you and the Lord. Whatever opportunity he gave you, it might be that there was one person that sat in the cubicle next to you in your office and they needed love for their whole dang life. They just needed love. And that was your calling was to love that person. To pray for him, to care for him, to minister love. It might be that that's all it was. If you're faithful with that, your reward would be as big as could possibly be in heaven. If you're unfaithful with that, you don't lose your salvation but there's no reward to the same degree that there would have been if we were faithful. Now, I would think this somewhat of a messed up motivation for serving the Lord. Reward in heaven. I'm going to serve the Lord because of the rewards I'll get in heaven. I would think it that way, but apparently the Lord doesn't think it that way because he said, you'll be rewarded according to your faithfulness. So he doesn't think it's messed up. He doesn't think it's bad to run and to race looking toward the reward that we will get in heaven. Nor do we think it's bad when we do it for our kids, do we? Hey, son, do thus and so. There'll be a reward. Well, we don't think that's necessarily a perverse thing. The Lord says that he'll reward us for our faithfulness. That's a wonderful thing. What a kind father. He'll reward us for our faithfulness. But there is going to come that day what will it be like for you on that day? It's going to be heaven. So you're not going to be super bummed out. Oh, this is it. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe it. This is all I get. This is it. Nobody's going to be doing that. It's still going to be heaven. But the Bible's very clear that there are degrees of reward in heaven. I just want to go ahead and be greedy in front of you. I'm excited about it. I want to get the biggest reward I could possibly get. I just do. If the Lord's handing them out, then I want to get them. Because if he's given them, they got to be good. And we will be rewarded according to faithfulness. 
Are you being faithful with the opportunities given you? You say, I don't know. I don't know what they are. Start serving somebody, you'll find out real quick. Start loving people around you, and you'll find out real quick. And then, we don't have time, so I'm not going to go to the passage, but in 2 Corinthians 4, it talks about that we all must persevere in serving the Lord. We've got to persevere in it. Let me just tell you, Jesus never said that following him would be easy. In fact, he said it would be really hard. In this world, you have trouble. You want to follow after me, he said? Pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow after me. And it says there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, since we have this kind of ministry, we do not lose heart. The idea in the original language being we're not like faint-hearted cowards. That's what it says in the original language. Since we have this wonderful ministry, since we've been invited into the mission of God, we don't give up. We run with perseverance. If you're going to serve the Lord, you're going to have hard times. There's going to be opposition. You find yourself in the midst of a spiritual battle. You find yourself in the midst of a world that likes you less because you're more like Jesus. But we got to persevere. Don't grow weary in doing good, for in due time you shall receive your reward. You'll reap what you sow, the Lord said. And so, we finish by asking ourselves, how is it that you're engaged in the disciple-making process? It may be that you're witnessing. Maybe that you're discipling somebody. Maybe that you're caring for someone that needs care. Maybe that you're supporting orphans. It may be that you're praying for a certain work. It may be that you're giving in a certain way. It may be that you're raising your children. That's making disciples. That's an awesome work of making disciples. Maybe that you're a mom and you stay at home and that's all you can pull off. You are making disciples if you're doing it for the Lord. Yeah, amen, amen. You see, the Lord knows every life circumstance of every one of you, and he's got good works right there. You say, I'm stuck in this dang cubicle all day. The Lord's got an op opportunity right there. I'm stuck with the kids all day. Opportunity right there. Whatever it is. Might be supporting others, but there's got to be some way in which you are able to say, yes, in this way I'm participating in the church's effort to make disciples as commanded by God. Christ. Every Christian has to have a way that they could say, this is how I'm doing it. To the glory of God and by grace, this is my participation. Now the main thing that keeps us from that is fear. That's the main thing that keeps us from that. Because we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. I understand that. Just step out and seek to serve somebody. The Lord will show you what to do. He'll probably show you more than you wanted him to, really. <laughs> You'll discover very quickly what it is the Lord wants you to do. But don't forget the priority of life. You see, true ministry flows from true intimacy with Jesus Christ. You cannot make your Christianity about doing things for him. That's a perverse Christianity. You can't make it that. It's not about that. It's about loving him. It's about being intimate with him and receiving his love. But if you're really doing that, if you're really cultivating that relationship, you will find that it has a yield, that it's fruitful, that something flows from it. And what is going to flow from it is ministry. The more you're just enjoying the love of Jesus Christ and being near to him, the less cerebral 
the less difficult, the more natural, organic, and right ministry will become. If you're just loving on Jesus and just resting upon his bosom and enjoying him, ministry is just going to be the outflow of your life. The outflow of your life. But you'll find that if your relationship with the Lord is kind of clunky and kind of hit and miss, and you're always kind of going off in your own direction, well, then any ministerial efforts are going to be the same way. Kind of clunky and hit and miss and going in the wrong direction. Just connect yourself to the person of Jesus Christ. Enjoy his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy, and you will suddenly find yourself very effective for him. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you so much for your word this morning and for this great exhortation. And Lord, help us now because these are big things. And Lord, for some of us, it's revolutionary. It's way beyond anything that we ever thought about, that our life isn't about ourselves, that it's about you and running and racing for your glory. Lord, help us. Teach us this balance in our lives of waiting, expecting, running, and racing. Teach us that balance, Lord. And Lord, expand our heart for the things of you. Don't let us get trapped in smallness of heart. Lord, expand our heart. Give us a vision for the nations and for this nation, for our community, for our families, for our friends, for our church. Lord, give us a vision. Impart vision to your people, Lord. Issue calls this morning, clear clarion calls. You've prepared good works for us, Lord. We want to walk in them. So issue calls this morning, Lord. I really believe that this morning, God wants to call many of us. He wants to open a brand new door for service to us. He wants to redeem the activity of our lives and make it so meaningful and so powerful. And in one year Bible reading the Old Testament today, we were reading about the priest being anointed. The New Testament says that every believer is a priest. And so our prayer team is going to be up here today, and they're ready to anoint you for ministry. If you feel that God is calling you, but you say, wow, okay, how do, how do I start? Go to the prayer team. They're going to pray for you for the empowering of the Holy Spirit to come upon you for that ministry. Maybe you're not even able to verbalize it. You just need some insight. Go get help. Maybe you can't verbalize it. Go up and say, God has called me to do this, but I need help. I'm afraid, or I'm lacking, or I'm overwhelmed. God will never call you to do anything he won't enable you to do. He just doesn't do that. He will enable you. But I believe he wants to call and anoint some of you today. So if you're sensing that call, get prayer. Let them pray over you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Watch how exciting life is.